You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 15 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Sunday, June 21st, 2015. My name is Harry Knight and with me today is Oliver Davis. Good afternoon, everybody. And Asha King. Oh, hello, listeners. A little bit late on the record uh, this week, again. Uh, we were going to record last week, and then, Asha, you uh, ran into a surfboard. Yeah, I've been on a bit on the injured reserve. We were surfing a spot north uh, last Wednesday, and I had a little run-in with my, my rail. And how many stitches have you got in your face right now? Oh, I got 11 stitches in my face. That's and good. I'm now just... Just now, not swollen enough that I can talk on the recording. Yeah, so we've we've had to delay the recording a little bit. And actually, uh, I, I came out of the dentist having just had a filling, and you and me were both stood there with our mouths not quite fully yeah, functional. Yeah, just half-functioning <laughs> mouths. <laughs> How have you been, Al? What have you been up to? Uh, similarly, surfing the same spot as Asher. It's funny, actually. I was, I was sort of surfing the fine line between wanting to help and sort of being the concerned friend and, and, and trying to get Asher to the doctors and also sort of going... It'd be alright, we'd just carry on surfing, shall we? Yeah. The waves are, cause it waves are pretty good, <laughs> Absolutely <huh>? pumping. <laughs> but on a plus note, um, we went up to the same place yesterday morning, me and Harry, and uh, yeah, had a pretty epic session it as well. It was still pretty good, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it wasn't really bad good. at all. And then, oh, uh, I'm jealous. A couple of bombs coming in, then came back here and, and surfed locally in Guiones, where it was offshore all day. Well, yeah. I've, spent, I've spent most of the last week researching board construction materials. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a nice long piece for you all later on, on... Uh, various different styles of construction, epoxy and polyester and all of these different things. So hopefully that will be interesting because it's taken me a lot of research to get through all the, uh, all the rubbish on the internet. Oh, I think you guys are going to like it. So a uh, quick flash through the news. Obviously we've got the, the Fiji event that's just happened that was pretty spectacular. We'll come back to that in, uh, in two minutes. But anyth- anything else caught your eyes? Uh, yeah, the new wave pool in Austin, Texas. That's quite exciting, eye. isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, I've been looking and following quite closely the one that's, uh, that's been built in Wales, uh, my home country. And I'm fully looking forward to going to use that one. But now they're actually building one in Austin, Texas, which is even more interesting because it's plainly in just a better spot, I yeah. thought. What's the temperature? Because I, I, I thought I thought Texas, warm, hot, sunny all the time, and I said that to someone yesterday, like, no, Austin gets pretty cold. No, yeah, in the wintertime, it's pretty cold there. They'll have a good season of warm water, though, won't they? Like, that, oh, yeah. that body of water will remain pretty warm all the way through their summertime, which is kind of cool. I'll tell you what, Austin is a heck of a cool city. That's if what I was going to say, yeah. If there's a wave in Austin... It, it makes might, it the complete city. Yeah, it, it's it's high, it's moving up pretty high on my list. Uh huh. It's certainly a little more exciting than uh, Cohen. I can't say Cohen. What's the nearest city? Manchester, probably. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the pool and uh, ages away. Yeah, in, in, in North Wales, Co- Co- Cohen or something. It's in Snowdonia, in like kind of a national park part of North Wales, which is not famed for its. Uh, Population, kind of, uh, population, <laughs> culture, <laughs> metropolitan cities, etc. It's fun. It's interesting that they put it there actually, and it must be to do with the tax break that they have. They must have been given some kind of incentive by the government to put well, it. Well, or is it just because there's lots of people, like people, go there on adventure? I, I guess, but it seems like a strange place to put it. You know, I was just yeah, the, the only difference is that reading about Austin, Texas. I mean, what a cool place to have a wave pool. Yeah, it really you would. Really choose a better place. Um, what's the link between the Texas wave pool and uh, Coors beer? Isn't it the the it's son the of Coors the Coors family? Yeah, yeah, the Coors the family's putting up the money. Yeah, yep. 
Wonder what brand of beer they're going to serve there. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of a good uh, uh, combination, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, those pair well. Yeah. One thing I was doing last week uh, while the Fiji contest was running up was uh, watching the ISA World Games. Oh, my which, gosh. Uh, yeah, Costa Rica took it, which yeah. is pretty cool. And then pretty much three days, four days after, we had the national Costa Rican circuit contest was here at Guiones. And yeah, all, the team, cool. all the team that had been up in Nicaragua and the ISA Games were here and there were... Lots of people getting selfies taken with them. and Oh, yeah. It was, it was pretty cool. It was yeah. cool it, to see um, Costa Rica win. It was Nomar that won, Nomar McGonagall, right? Yeah. That's, that kid surfs amazing. I A couple years ago, I did two weeks down at Pavones, and I got really lucky to some like pretty all-time surf. Mm-hmm. And he was clearly the best surfer in the water, Yeah, even with a lot of traveling pros. He grew up down there. I've, I've heard a couple of people tout him as he, he may even make the tour, you know, before... Carlos. Yeah, if um if the QS stopped right now, I think he'd be well within the qualifying number. I think he's uh, like 16 in the world. That's pretty awesome. QS. That's pretty awesome. It's Costa Rica on the rise. Yeah, putting Costa Rica on the map. Okay, uh, another kind of more interesting story coming in from left field a bit is the SAS, which is um, a British organization called Surfers Against Sewage, um, very similar to the Surf Rider Foundation in the in the US. These guys have teamed up with some researchers, some independent researchers, to test for antibiotic-resistant bacteria in seawater, i.e. basically to test for water pollution in the sea. Surfers are really good test subjects for this because they tend to, it says down here, that they tend to swallow a lot more seawater than the average uh, sea user. And it says 170 milliliters per session. That seemed like a very high amount to me no i could believe that you think like every time that you just get a little bit in your mouth and you oh and it, it sort of builds you, up yeah. a small small amounts over time if you add that like 170 mil isn't much at all i hope i don't swallow that much i feel like i'm 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 sort of low low down on the bell curve i feel like i'm a low amount of seawater swallowage and i think i'm pretty high i feel like i'm consistently swallowing okay seawater okay. in the water so you know we know. might even each other out okay good to know Good to know. Well, that seemed like quite a lot to me anyway. So it basically, it puts surfers as a very good test subject for... Um, and so how are they testing it? <laughs> well, here's the, here's, the, uh, here's the interesting bit of the story. They're going to take 300 surfers and they are going to take rectal swabs to test for the presence of bacteria to see if this bacteria is going all the way through the digestive oh. tract. Basically going to wipe their bums. Yeah, going to wipe their bums, but sort of more internally than that. It's uh, it's, it's it's like really getting up close and personal, getting Ooh, right lovely. in there. Yeah. So I don't know whether the surfers <laughs> need to go and do that themselves or whether somebody does it for them. Um, I don't know. How do you how do you get signed up to be one of those three hundred? How did pretty keen for that? Yeah, the no, lucky three. <laughs> is that a is it like a punishment to get put in those 300 or well, do you volunteer? I mean, it depends on the it's subjective, really, isn't it? It could be a punishment or it could be a... Yeah, some people pay for that sort of service. pay for that, yeah. Mm, there you go. So that's that's going to be quite interesting. They're saying that this, this bacteria is pretty damaging to the, uh, the to the digestive tract and a lot of... I mean, it's funny because the certainly the water in the UK in the last 20 years has apparently got a lot better. But I yeah, think, I this, think is, so. this is to do with sewage, sewage outlet and basically how... This bacteria seems to be pretty tough to me because it can kind of hang out in the in the sea for a bit and then you know survive the uh, acid of the stomach and What's then go the all the way through. What's the name of the bacteria? Um, they just it said it said in most of the stuff I was reading just a superbug, a superbug uh, right. that was antibiotic resistant. While we're on the environmental news, I saw that the uh, Surfrider Foundation are suing Huntington Beach. Ooh, Huntington Beach have revoked their uh, plastic bag ban. Uh, Huntington Beach have banned plastic bags uh-huh. in all the shops. 
and they've revoked that and Surfrider are now suing them. Okay. And I thought this was interesting because I actually listened to a really interesting podcast on plastic bags the other day, which doesn't sound like an interesting podcast, but it was. I'll put a link to it on surfsimply.com slash podcast in the show notes for this episode. But they were talking about how actually the cheap, as far as the science goes, your basic disposable plastic bag is the most environmentally friendly there pretty much is you've got to use you know the plastic reusable ones they give you the sort of bag for life you've got to use those like four or five times something like that before it balances out environmentally and you've got to use a cotton bag a hundred times before hmm. it balances and they're the out. very things that you leave in the trunk of your car every single time you ever go shopping or leave in your house exactly so you, people tend to have a lot and then the other interesting thing was they were saying that people use the single-use bags almost everybody takes them home uses them for the oh, shopping yeah, you but use then them uses for them for you know lining the, the bin in the toilet or, or lining a, a small waste bin or something like that and if you do putting that, your wet trunks in the thing that i thought was really interesting about this is that it is you know surf rider obviously very concerned with the environment uh-huh. and they are trying to sue huntington beach f- over an environmental policy which they've reversed but from what I can tell, Huntington Beach are actually reversing the policy in a way that is more environmentally conscious hmm. based on the environment that they're in. And Surfrider are suing them to make them do something which may actually be worse for the environment. Right. I mean, that's what the science says. It's, it, it, it's kind of hard to see. And, and I'll put a link to this podcast because they go into it in a lot more detail. But it, yeah. it, there was a lot of stuff in there that really surprised me in terms of what happens. And it, it's, it's location dependent as well. They were saying you, you, if you're in a, a civilized, uh, developed country with a very good um, waste disposable program, then it's obviously very different to if you're in the developing world and they're burning the trash in the street. Ah, uh, of course. So, um, Fiji. Wow, what a contest. Yeah. So right after we, we finished recording the last episode and we were talking about the women's contest and I think pretty much as we were wrapping all the cables up, they called the contest on and Sally went through and stormed through to victory. Which yeah, was Sally was pretty, pretty cool. impressive. She's never uh, never really been my favorite female surfer, but man, she charged. Yeah. I guess she had that ruptured eardrum through the later half of the event. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. I, I don't think I would have had anything to do with those waves anyway. Yeah. Much less with a busted eardrum. Yeah, you could imagine you'd feel very vulnerable surfing it with any kind of injury, really. Yeah. yeah. Some people can sort of push through it. I wouldn't. So that was pretty impressive. And then the men's turned on, and the first couple of rounds, the, I don't know, conditions Waves were kind of small, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. it wasn't yeah. that great. But it got better and better and better as it went through. And then by the end... Um, by the end, it was pumping. It was pumping. and It looked really difficult to surf, though. That wind blowing up the face looked, I don't know, really, really not user-friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, some people that impressed me... Uh, Dane Reynolds. Didn't think I'd be saying that name. I love Dane, but he never seems to turn up in contests. But, man, he really put it together in those early rounds. He did He did well, didn't he? But, um, yeah, him, Kelly, Medina. Yeah, Kelly looked good until he, until he lost steam. But, yeah, he, once again, a pretty, I guess, is their characteristic kind of flawed heats for him now. His heat strategy doesn't seem to where it used to be. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? But on the opposite end of a good heat strategy. Oh, my gosh, Owen Wright. Two perfect heats. Owen Wright is not afraid to pull into a barrel. Owen Wright is a man. He is a man. He is a man's man. So for those of you that didn't see Owen Wright, in a surf contest, you're scored, if each wave is scored out of 10 points, so a 10-point ride would be a perfect ride. There's only a few people in history that have managed to get two perfect rides within the one heat because you're scored on your best two waves, and so you get a, a, a finishing score out of 20 points. There's only a few people in history have managed to do 
uh, the perfect 20. And Owen managed it twice within one contest. Twice in one the contest. the only person who's incredible. ever done First that. time. That was incredible. It was incredible because he was leading the final by such a big margin before he even got the two tens. Yes. Both tens were in the last, what, four minutes of the heat? That was amazing. I feel like it's probably because he's so tall. Everyone else is like, whoa, these ways are big. But Owen's like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not, a, it's not a big at all. Barely shoulder high. Yes, yeah, barely yeah. shoulder high. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that was that was pretty cool. So for our little fantasy team, uh, Michael and Joe, well done. You guys won the men's event, and uh, Corin, you won the women's. Corin's taken the lead in the women's tour. Asher, you're still in the lead in the men's tour. Still barely holding on. Barely, a, well, barely holding a, on, but luckily to us, in second place. Our, yeah, uh, surf not team. bad. And the the next events, just put the dates in your calendar. We've got the men's event at J Bay, which is one of my favourites to watch. So happy they brought that event back. Um, That's starting July 8th. And the women's are in July 27th at the US Open in Huntington. You know who they should give the wild card to for J Bay? Taylor Knox. Oh, that'd be great, actually. I really like how they're kind of, they're giving the wild card now to people that we want to see in the event. Yeah. Are they going to do another uh, Karanaki showdown? Oh, I hope so. How good was that? Have you? Did you see the the really silly advert that Braun have done? No, they've uh, they got Oki to do a really silly thing. Uh, oh, it's amazing. Where it's like Oki's been living in the water, and they've got Rabbit and Joel Parkinson and stuff being really concerned because he's just been living out in the water and not coming in, trying to train and beat Tom <laughs> Curran. And, uh, they're like, yeah, some of the care packages didn't work so well. It's him shaking his laptop trying to get the water out. <laughs> and it's, yeah, but it, at least the razor worked. I mean, he looks sharp. <laughs> He's out there with a waterproof razor. Oh, I'm going to have to look that up. It's pretty funny. I'll, put, should, that, I'll should, put it on the show notes. We should email the uh, World Surf League and ask them to put Taylor Knox in for that contest. Is this a sponsored one? Uh, no, it's uh, J Bay oh, really? Open. Yeah. So okay. I know they gave Slade Prestwich, a uh, South African kind of up-and-comer one of the wild cards, but they should have at least one more, and then if there's, there's injuries, they'll injuries, have yeah. a few more. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Speaking of injuries, it is such a shame we didn't get to see John John in those conditions at, in Fiji. Yeah, could have been good, couldn't it? Oh, my gosh. That would have been amazing. Yeah. Well, good luck to everybody that's recovering. And, yeah. Uh, hopefully, we'll see you all in the next event. Oh, guys, I'm right there with you. Okay, so the main feature this week, I'm going to talk a little bit about surfboard construction and how boards are made. And uh, I hope that I've managed to condense all of my research down into a small enough package to uh, keep this interesting for you all. It's a pretty Um, broad topic. It's a tough one to condense down. It is. It was a really tough one for me to condense down. What I wanted to go over was some of the facts and fictions that surround surfboard construction. Um, we had an email a couple of weeks ago with a listener asking for our thoughts on epoxy surfboards versus polyurethane ones. And that's a pretty fair way to phrase the question, given how these are normally talked about on the internet. But there's actually a big problem with the question straight away, because epoxy is a material that's used to make the skin of a surfboard, but polyurethane is used to create the core in the middle, the foam, and they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, I actually own two boards that use both at the same time. So what I want to do is this. I think the easiest thing to do is to break the surfboard down into its component parts and look at the different methods for manufacturing each part. Sound good? Uh-huh. Sounds good to me. All right. So the first part is the core in the middle of the board, which is normally made of foam. 
and that's then covered with a skin which is traditionally fiberglass. And the final part of the construction is the stringer, which is that strip of wood that runs along the middle of a, a traditional board. So when we're looking at all the different constructions for these, the three properties of the final board that are going to be affected most are going to be the weight, uh, the strength and the flex pattern. So the core and the skin will affect all three, uh, but the stringer really, it only affects the flex and the strength because it, it doesn't mm -hmm. weigh very much of the, of the final total. The core accounts for the majority of the weight in a traditional board, two-thirds to three-quarters of the, of the finished weight. But the skin and the stringer are actually what provide most of the strength, those two working. Really? Yeah. Um, now, there's loads of really interesting ideas out there about how to build surfboards, lots of new ideas. And it's going to be hard enough for me just to cover the basics. So if we get some good feedback, if, if you find this interesting, listeners, let us know. And we'll maybe do another episode on some of the sort of more high-tech ideas that are coming out. So first off, I want to tackle the stringer, uh, as it's the quickest to explain, and it's a good way to introduce some of the materials we're going to be talking about. And like I said, the stringer is that strip of wood which runs the length of a traditional fiberglass board. Now it's there because without it, the board would probably bend beyond what the core and the skin would be able to cope with. So the stringer is really important in preventing the board from snapping, especially on longer boards, uh, where the stringer actually has to be beefed up a little bit more to cope with the bigger strains. So this means that the stringer then has a pretty big say in the way that the board flexes on the wave. And although they feel pretty solid, uh, a surfboard can flex quite a lot as you're riding it. Now that strip of wood has its limitations. And the really big one is that the flex of the board will vary a lot depending on the grain of the wood. And that's mostly hidden inside the board. And you get a little knot could stiffen one part of the board in just the right way. But it would then be almost impossible to replicate that sort of magic board. So you're telling me that my magic surfboard might only have the right flex pattern because there was a knot two feet up or something. There is. There's a knot in your board, and that's the reason why it's the magic one. You'll never ah. get that again. But hey, you'd think that they'd find some kind of means of making like a plastic stringer or something, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Yeah, very, very a little un, more perfect. It's not very homogenous material. Pattern. It seems odd to me that they're still using wood. Ab absolutely. So there's a few companies that are playing around with this, and they're using things like fiberglass, carbon fiber, um, even PVC plastic to get a more measured and consistent flex and I think the, the big reason that that hasn't been an issue is people have been more worried about the shape of the surfboard than the flex of it and it's only as we've sort of moved forwards and, and there's been a bit of crossover between snowboard tech and ski tech and stuff like that that people have become worried about consistent flex patterns within the surfboard. It's just interesting that you were talking about that I used to be a carpenter and you very often pick up like a piece of door lining or something and if it had a knot in it it would very often snap so yep. the knot would disrupt the kind of the strength of the wood. So they started then they got rid of that and started using fiberboard. Okay, yep. so it's like like chipped up wood. They whack a load of glue in with it and then they kind of like compress it into the same shape. And that was like much. It was it behaved very similar to wood, but obviously it had a homogenous. Yeah, you much more. Um, so yeah, all all of that tech is is kind of a little new. Every now and then you'll see a board with it, but they're not too common. What has become a lot more common is people putting strips of carbon. Uh, placed in, in certain places of the board in order to help engineer the flex of that, that part of the board. The other change that's happened more recently is companies like Firewire and FutureFlex taking that stringer and placing it out on the rails. Uh -huh. So it, it changes the way the board flex. It allows the board to sort of twist more rather than, than flexing along its length. So a little bit more like a snowboard might bend. But the end goal is actually the same. So along with that flex, the wood and the carbon out on the rails are there to just stop the board from snapping when it's placed under a high loading. So 
Let's move on to the core. Now, like I said, this is normally a plastic foam material. Uh, and for the last 60 years or so, the most common foam has been polyurethane, uh, which is often abbreviated to poly or to PU. Uh, it comes in different densities, but the standard for surfboards is around three pounds per cubed foot. And uh, a cubed foot is about 26 litres. So your, your sort of standard shortboard is, uh, is about a cubed foot. That's very nice and neat and tidy, isn't it? Well, it certainly, it certainly gives you a good way to, to just visualise that, that yeah. three pounds per cubed foot. So some guys will then seek out lower density blanks uh, for a high performance board or heavier blanks for step-ups and towing boards. The towing boards that they make are sort of six to ten pounds per, per mm. cubed foot. So That's where you'll then often hear shapers talking about a blue or a red foam. That's actually just the color, the coding from the manufacturers for different densities. Oh, to it indicate its density. Exactly. They, they just sort of spray paint a little patch of the board blue. I wouldn't um, have thought that they really need to make the short, the modern shortboard particularly much more light than it already is. Well, you, know what I mean? you, you could imagine how they want like a step-up board to be heavier, but like a modern shortboard, would you really need that to be particularly... I guess if you're a Philippe Toledo and you're spinning... For me and you, probably not. Probably not. Yeah. We'll come back to that actually later on. So polyurethane blanks have the advantage they're really really nice to work with i don't know if any of you guys have ever tried shaping a board for yourself but if it's a, a polyurethane blank you can just get a bit of sandpaper and you can make these little macrometer adjustments all the way around it's it's really easy to work it flexes nicely it's um, because it's got very those kind of very tiny micro bubbles in right it's, yes yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's a very high density foam and it's pretty cheap because polyurethane is a pretty pretty widely used chemical mm -hmm. um, so shapers have been pretty happy using it but there are a whole load of problems with it. And the first one is that although it flexes nicely, it can get crushed under pressure, which is why you end up with those sort of which pressure dents around the string. Kind of why my magic board is becoming smaller and smaller by the, by the day. Yeah, Absolutely. it actually yeah. changes the volume. Yeah, yeah. well, mine's, I reckon mine's, mine's been affected by maybe one or two liters just by looking at it. Because like, I sit in the water a lot lower than what I did when it was new. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then if the outer skin gets a hole in it, the polyurethane blank will take on uh, water, um, which can then cause it to yellow and start to break down and do all sorts of horrible things. And PU blanks are pretty bad at going yellow anyway. And nobody wants a yellow surfboard. Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> I can't let it go. I honestly, it's I've beautiful. probably got rid of more surfboards for being yellow than any other reason. A, a yellowing of the surfboard is a purely a fashion thing, I'm afraid. And it's very, very shallow of you two to be so worried about your fashion of your surfboard well so the real killer here for the for the pu board is that it's actually it's really non-eco-friendly it uh the production and, and the working of it creates some really horrible chemicals and the finished product will takes a long time to break down so this and a, a few other reasons that we definitely don't have time for now has seen a recent increase in the number of boards that are using expanded polystyrene uh, or eps as a core now, EPS is the foam that you normally find packed around your TV or lining a beer cooler or something like that. It's the, the real bobbly bead-based foam. EPS density can vary a lot, but for surfboards, it's normally lighter than polyurethane. It's kind of like one to two pounds per cubed foot. So it's, it's, it's a bit lighter. It's also stiffer, but more brittle. So I, I'm sure, you know, everyone's got some packing foam at some point and snapped it. And it just, it doesn't bend at all. It just... Yeah, it, goes, it just yeah. just snaps clean so that sounds like eps might not be very good for a surfboard but the different properties of the board come from different parts of it and the flex of the surfboard doesn't come massively from the core it comes from the skin and the stiffer the core actually makes a stronger board 
we were saying earlier that not that much of the strength comes from the core, but a good amount of the strength comes from the core of the board. And uh, having a, a real stiff material in the core will make the board very strong. So because the EPS is then stiffer as a material, you can use a lighter density to get the same strength, but thus, with a much lower weight. Thus, yeah, yeah that's a, a lighter surfboard. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Okay. Now, EPS does have its problems. Um, it takes on quite a lot of water. Um, the water gets into all the little... In between Cracks the beads. Between the beads, exactly. There are a few companies working on that, trying to kind of fuse the beads together and stuff like that. But the big problem with it is that it's a real pain to shape. If you try rubbing it with sandpaper or anything, it just kind of flakes and, and falls apart. So what you have to do is carve it with a, a hot knife. You get this bit of wire and run electricity through it, and you can sort of melt it almost like a cheese wire. Yeah, a guy from Jacksonville, Florida, has been making my boards since I was about 12. A guy named Mike Wisnett of Wisnett Surfboards, and he, I've always asked him to make me an EPS board and he's always said no I'm not doing that that is way too time consuming absolutely so yeah you've either got to do that or you've got to put it in a you, you sort of form the board in a mold which works really well if you've got a, a big mass manufacturing company like SurfTech or NSP uh, but yeah it's terrible for a, then you a don't get quite the customization exactly so for a, a shaper who's trying to do you know custom orders it's a real pain yeah because um, they'd have to relearn all the skills now that said there are a whole bunch of shapers now who are using EPS blanks and they are a lot more well they're a bit more eco-friendly uh, mm -hmm. than the the PU blanks so that's good and, the, and the, there's a few companies that are starting to recycle uh, sort of packing foam to to make the blanks which is pretty cool now, the final core that you might hear about is extruded polystyrene which is normally shortened to XPS now extruded polystyrene might almost be our our wonder foam because it doesn't soak up water it's really easy to shape like PU and it's got a nice consistent flex pattern but it's a lot more environmentally friendly than polyurethane the problem with it is though that because it's sort of hydrophobic like it, it sheds water mm -hmm. when you then try to glue the skin onto the core uh -huh. it doesn't bond yeah so a and lot of delams loads of delamination uh, which is a real pain the other problem is that actually over time uh, extruded polystyrene just the way it's made means that it starts to release gas underneath a sealed board which then causes a whole load of, oh, sort of no. bubbles and bumps and stuff like this now does that mean it's presumably more dense then so it's going to be a, a heavier blank than the original polystyrene one it, it's heavier than expanded polystyrene but it's about the same density as yeah okay. uh, polyurethane yeah. so fletcher Schonard, um who works with patagonia making all their boards he's a big fan of the foam and there's a company called xtr who make most of the uh, ex extruded polystyrene blanks um, they reckon they're managing to fix a lot of these problems, but as yet, you don't see a lot of XPS blanks being used in surfboard construction. One material that used to be used a lot and it's getting a little bit of a resurgence is wood. Uh, you can make a core out of out of a wood, uh, like the old balsa wood boards. Very attractive looking surfboard. Beautiful boards. Very strong, flexes nicely, uh, but the problem is it's incredibly heavy. Even if you get a lightweight yeah. wood like balsa, uh, it's still three to four times the weight of a polyurethane blank. I wouldn't mind having one to ride a couple times and then hang on the wall. So yeah, you know, some people like particularly for a bigger, you know, long board. Some people yeah, really weight, like a heavy board. Pretty advantageous. So, yeah, you know, for, for good or for bad, uh, shaping out of wood can really make the board uh, a lot heavier, which then affects the performance. And most wooden boards you do still then cover with a little bit of fiberglass just to protect the wood. So the final core that I want to talk about is air. Um, there are quite a few companies that have played around with making hollow surfboards. A la George Greeno. 
Yeah, George Greeno played around with it a little bit. Do you remember the old Solomon boards that were around a few years back? Yeah, those were pretty interesting. Yeah. Those were yeah. hollow, weren't they? They were hollow. So the, the interesting thing is if you, if you make a board hollow, it's obviously super, super lightweight. But you lose all the strength of the board that would come say, from well, the core. You'd surely have to make up this, you know, the, the weight that you lose from having a core obviously comes back from the fact that you have to have a much more you know, thick skin. Right. So you have to have a very strong skin just uh-huh. to keep the whole strength of the board together. Yeah. And that the final problem, obviously, with a hollow board is if you stick a hole in it, it sinks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. It's got no no neutral buoyancy. So as soon as it gets a hole in it, the whole thing just sinks below the water. And I, I, I seem to remember one of the guys that was riding for Solomon quit because yep. he, he stuck the board on a reef and the board sunk and like started to pull him under, which isn't what you want. Didn't those old Solomons have a, uh, have a plug in the back? You could actually, yes. and in the, case the, the board the got too hot. Or, as well, didn't they? Right. Well, so the reason that they if, have if that you took is them on the plane. If you, well, yeah, if you've got a lot of air trapped within the board, and the board heats up, or you go up in it an expands. airplane and it, it expands, you can crack the board. So you have to have a valve. Burst your um, surfboard. So, onto the skin of the board then, which is traditionally made of fiberglass uh, or fiber-reinforced plastic or fiber-reinforced polymer uh, to give it its proper name. Fiberglass is actually a trademark, kind of like Kleenex. Uh, which is something I didn't know beforehand. Kleenex is made of fiberglass. Yeah, yeah, they make fiberglass tissues for your nose. <laughs> really nice. <laughs> really, really nice. A trademark like Kleenex and not a trademark <laughs> of Kleenex. Um, so a fiberglass skin is, is actually it's a composite material. You make it by soaking the woven glass fibers with a, a liquid plastic resin, which then hardens. Um, the fibers provide the strength and the stiffness, and the cured resin binds the fibers together and makes the whole thing waterproof. So there are two different types of resin that then get used. Uh, one is called polyester, and one is called epoxy. So if anyone ever tells you that there are fiberglass boards and epoxy ones, they don't really know what they're talking about. That they're all fiberglass. Okay, so. The two resins do have different properties. So let's start with the, the traditional option, which is polyester. Okay, Polyester resin's been used in boat building for years and years and years. So it's, it's cheap. Uh, it's really quick and easy to work with because you can add chemicals to it that control how quickly it becomes a solid. But it's really smelly. The hardening agents are really toxic. Um, so a glassing room really isn't a very nice place to work. You can't use it on polystyrene foams because it, it actually melts through the polystyrene foam. It's, it's a pretty nasty stuff. And then as time goes by, the polyester resin will become more and more brittle uh, and likely to crack. And, and so actually you were saying that a, a yellow board is purely a cosmetic thing. Actually, with a, a polyester skinned board, once it's going yellow... It's, it's ha- starting to lose that kind of groove, isn't it? That, that well, flexibility. Yeah. What, mm-hmm. what yeah. starts to happen actually is that as it flexes, it starts to get these little cracks within it. And the, the, the polymer strength is actually starting to break up, which is, is not very good. So consequently, epoxy is actually a much better resin for surfboard construction. Uh, it's got a much higher strength to weight ratio. And it's way more resistant to cracking compared to polyester, especially as it ages. And just to clarify, what you were saying then is that epoxy and polyester become the the matrix, but they're both used with the fiberglass reinforcement. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, epoxy also is a much better bonding agent. It's much better for gluing one substance to a different substance, about a 20% stronger bond. Uh, so you get much less delamination between the skin and the core of the board. 
and then it doesn't degrade in the same way. It doesn't yellow in quite the same way. It can, it can they yellow. They do go a little yellow. They they do go a little yellow, but the, the, the as it yellows, that is then more cosmetic. It's it's you're not losing that. I was that wondering strength. also whether the foam yellows underneath. It does. You do yes. see a lot of yellowing foam. You know, yes. old old surfboards. Oh, absolutely. No, yeah. no, no. It yellows a lot. So the problem with epoxy is that it's about three to five times more expensive than using polyester. Uh-huh. And it isn't as easy to control as it dries, um, and it can vary a lot with heat and humidity. Um, so unless you really get to know it, you can have some kind of disastrous glassing events. Some people also become a little allergic to it for some reason, but there's a couple of companies that are trying to remove the chemicals that cause the uh, sensitivity. Now, epoxy is also good because you can use it with any core material, and it's odourless, or there are certainly a lot of odourless formulas. So it's, it's a much, much nicer product to use on a day-to-day basis. Now, the most common fibre used in surfboards is glass. Um, it's the same stuff that you'd find in, in your window, you know. But there are slight different variations. So there's one called e-glass, which is the most common. The e actually stands for electrical. It was, it was originally formulated not to carry a current, but it's now just the most standard mm-hmm. glass u- uh, type of glass used for, for fiberglass. Um, but you might also hear some people talking about S-glass. Now, the S stands for strength. And using S-Class can make your board about 10% stronger and stiffer uh, at the same weight. But it's, it's also a bit more expensive, so uh, it's not used all that much. There are two other fabrics that get used a lot. There's carbon fibre and something called Volon glass, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Asher. Oh, huge fan of Volon glass. So Volon, interestingly, is actually it's just a treatment. It's a bit like Scotchgard. It was um, used on a boat building, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, basically. It was, e-glass actually isn't very good in a salt environment, so they mm-hmm. treat it with different materials, and Volon was, was just this uh, sort of Scotchgard treatment to try and keep the water out. Um, so it was the standard boat building glass back in the 60s, which is why they built all the boards out of it in the 60s. Because it had to be treated with this chemical, the weave was thicker, so it soaked up a lot of resin, so it became very, very heavy. Made this really heavy glass job. And so Makes now you a it's nice, heavy longboard. So yeah, now it's used sort of the retro, heavy log longboards. They, uh-huh. they still like to use that volume. Those glass. couple you of Austin can, boards that we have. Yeah, you can still get, get a hold mm-hmm. of it a bit. Um, yeah. So carbon fiber is kind of the opposite. It's got this huge strength to weight ratio. It's really, really stiff. It can be a bit brittle. If you, if you hit fiberglass, it can just kind of shatter a little bit. So some people uh, mix it up with Kevlar. You get these carbon Kevlar idea and that's meant to be a little a little bit more impact resistant weight for weight carbon does soak up a little bit more resin but because it's so strong you can use an infinitely lighter weave of cloth uh-huh. uh, and still get this strength and therefore generally have a thinner skin right e- exactly yeah. so yeah carbon's really expensive is the big problem the um, problem i have with carbon surfboards is they're always black carbon fiber so when you go surfing on them all of your wax melts off well that that is another problem the, the other thing as well actually is that they end up very stiff you know mm-hmm. a, a pure carbon board has almost no flex to it so uh, some people like that but most don't there's a couple of companies there's black dart and avesco that make these all carbon surfboards i got a chance to ride one of those uh is it a visco yeah yeah i rode uh one of the herbie fletcher Longboards of his a nine six a pretty good bit a couple of years ago and it is just so stiff all carbon yeah it was pretty yeah. fun but it was really really stiff I mean I think Ma- it's not makes it pretty hard to nose ride so yeah carbon isn't normally used all over you normally see little strips of it used for the stringer and things like that now all of these fibers uh, they generally get described in weight per square yard as weight not per square yard of a given thickness of a given thickness right, okay. yeah so so like four and six ounce are the standard uh-huh. weights okay. and that's four ounces per square yard now usefully a square yard is about the size of the deck of a shortboard so that actually makes all the calculations quite easy 
the only thing is those are dry weights so a good glass job should probably match the cloth and the resin about one for one um, so the skin on a shortboard with a layer of four ounce cloth on the deck and the bottom would be about 16 ounces or one pound in weight and that that's then on top of our th one to three pound core that we were talking about beforehand. Okay. okay now the downside is that single four ounce deck and four ounce in the bottom uh, skin would be quite weak so what you normally do is you use a couple of different layers on each side because by doing this you can quite quickly you can triple the strength and the stiffness of the board for a, a, only about a 25% increase in weight because most of the weight comes from the core not the skin okay okay and this is where it, the core skin relationship really comes together like you mentioned earlier Ollie because by having a lighter core you can use more fibers and resin to make a stronger board the same weight Okay, and you can even use a technique called vacuum bagging, which sucks out a lot of the resin. You don't need lots of resin to hold all the fibers together because you'll usually be left with an excess. Yeah, you'll usually yeah. have a bit too much resin on there, so you vacuum bag it, which sucks out a lot of the spare resin. It's the mm -hmm. fibers that are giving you the strength. Now, there is one type of skin material that's not a composite, and that's wood. Uh, wood skin boards look amazing, uh, but as we mentioned before, the wood's really heavy, so the wood boards need to have a very light core in order to remain functional. So is now, that what uh, Firewire is doing right now with their timber techs? Firewire I'll come to in a sec, but there's two companies. There's Grain in the US and Otter in the UK, and they're making hollow all wooden boards, which are pretty heavy, but not dysfunctionally so. But they are beautiful. Oh, stunningly beautiful. Now Firewire, like you said, has just brought out these timber tech boards. Now they've got this very light EPS core. I think it's a one pound per cubed foot density core. And then this thin skin of polonia wood over the top and they they look great mm -hmm. now they're not properly wooden skins because they also use uh, a couple of layers of fiberglass in there to strengthen the so whole it's thing more up. cosmetic than it is no it's not cosmetic it's it's pretty functional it's it's something called a sandwich construction and that's where you take several of these materials we've been talking about and you combine them together like a a layered sandwich to get the best out of all the different properties okay now, actually, all surfboards are sandwich construction because you're combining the core and the uh, fibers and the skin plastic and, and all the rest of it. They're all sandwich construction from a technical thing. But within the industry, when we talk about a sandwich construction, we're talking about these ones, these multi-layered multi skins. Yeah. And um, the most famous ones are probably the Surftex. That's, that's the, the, you mm -hmm. know, the classic sandwich construction board. They actually have, they've got a light EPS core with then its epoxy resin, uh, glass, and they use um, some cellulose fibers as well. Uh, and it creates this super light, super strong board. I'm guessing you guys have, have used a Tough Light at some point. Yeah, oh, a couple of yeah. them. Yeah. I've had a couple Tough Light longboards. So they're incredibly lightweight, okay? Very, very strong. Uh, there are other constructions from different companies that use things like wood, carbon, PVC, high-density foam, uh, all sorts of things like that. But almost universally, they use epoxy resin to bind all these layers together because, like we said before, epoxy is a much, much better gluing agent. So these are the boards. When, when you hear someone talking about an epoxy board, this is normally what they're mm -hmm. talking about is these sandwich construction boards. Now, these boards have come in for a lot of flack from different places over the years. Some people don't like the way they flex differently and they feel different. Um, and there are a lot of shapers that were worried about mass production boards stealing their, their chunk of the market. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Internet's full of kind of misinformation. It was really hard for me to, to piece out um, some of the more accurate science. But in reality, you know, there were some pretty cheap, badly made boards back in the 80s and 90s, but they're pretty hard to find now. And the modern boards have had a ton of R&D thrown into them by, by big companies. And 
consequently they can actually surf better with an engineered flex pattern and mm -hmm. they last longer than a traditional board it's um, amazing how long the surf decks yeah. last yeah, yeah it's right. incredible now interestingly the one myth that does continue to surround these boards is that because they're so lightweight they're too buoyant and they're sort of corky and that you can't dig a rail in them properly now a lighter board should float a little higher than a heavier one, and a surf tech could be, you know, a quarter less total weight than a, a normal board, and that's mm -hmm. that's a lot. You know, you're dropping a pound in weight over the total surfboard, but you have to take into account the weight of the rider as well. It's an overall package. You can't just look at the weight of the board, and losing a pound of weight on the board is about 0.5 percent of the total I was rider say, board package. You wouldn't be able to feel the extra buoyancy of the board when pushing through a turn. I mean, it would be an infinitesimally small effect, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you can cut you can cut a pound of weight by going to the bathroom before you go. Yeah, yourself. right. And you're yeah. like, oh, I felt so corky out there. My board wouldn't turn probably because I had a wee. Absolutely. <laughs> so the reality is that the boards flex differently. <laughs> yeah. And because of the stiffer skin, you know, they, they transmit the, the inputs from your feet and from the wave underneath differently. So they feel different, but it's not obvious why. And so people jump on the most obvious reason, which is you put the board under your arm and you go, oh my God, this thing's really lightweight. But people jump on that as being the cause. But actually, as soon as you start running the numbers, that just doesn't add up. There's no way that, that dropping no. that little bit of weight. And so, you know, as we said, dropping a little bit of weight might make a difference if you're Philippe Toledo going for that big you know air reverse and even then i would see it only as as a as a need for um adapting rather than it flooring the entire maneuver do you know what i mean absolutely absolutely if there was any difference but but as i say in amongst all the variables of the wave and the you know your mindset and your weight on a day-to-day -day basis uh -huh. you know that 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 half a pound to a pound of weight there's no way very ever, minimal difference yeah just can't add up um so at the end of the day then what should you ride well there's no answer to that you should ride the board that you like the most uh, kelly slater uses eps epoxy boards when he's surfing in smaller weaker waves but goes back to pu and polyester in bigger conditions because he likes the way those boards feel in those different conditions mm -hmm. from an environmental standpoint epoxy and eps are slightly better and the sandwich boards will have the, the best lifespan of all. Um, but in reality, the impact of these materials is nothing compared to the CO2 reproduced driving around looking for weight. PU and polyester is the cheapest and easiest way to make a custom board. The mass-produced EPS and epoxy boards are way stronger and way more able to take our abuse. So the best thing to do is just go out there and demo a few different boards. Go to shops, go to demo days surf lots of stuff and find out what you like and don't like because at the end of the day for most surfers the actual construction of the board doesn't matter nearly as much as as you think and certainly not as much as the shape and the volume of the board overall i think it's also just as a last point what you're used to and it's very easy to, uh, to dismiss anything that you're not used to as something that's bad Yes. You know what I mean? When you get on that new board and you're like, oh, I don't like this. It doesn't feel right. But yeah, actually, when you try out that new board in bad conditions. In and bad ooh. conditions. And or it's just simply that it's new and you need some time to get used to it. And then, you know, you could write it off and say, well, epoxy boards are too corky and they don't flex enough. And actually, I think that it could just be a case of just getting used to how it feels. Are you still selling your new board, though? hundred percent. I had, I had <laughs> two surfs. <laughs> I had two, two surfs on it. It's hideous. It's totally flawed. It's, it's, it the board is not it, correct. Yeah, it's not, it's not correct. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. For this week's superhero of surf, I have the pleasure of telling you about one of the most pivotal surfers of all times, but often overlooked. Um, none other than 
Mr. Phil Edwards. Ah, the original power surfer. Yeah, as, uh, as one of the most popular servers of the 50s and 60s, Edwards pretty much changed the game in terms of how a wave was ridden. If you look back on footage uh, in that time, most of the surfers just kind of rode in a straight line to the beach. Well, it was it was a straight line, wasn't it? And with maybe like a little turn just to keep them in the pocket, but it was very Yeah, horizontal. a little bit, but there yeah. really wasn't anyone doing big changes of direction or, uh, or trim, and that's kind of what he brought to the table and what led to his title as the original power surfer. Yeah, just big, big back, back foot. It's uh, the, cut, the proper cutback, like rather than just sort of... Yeah, stalling. big back foot surfing, but also, I don't know, it always kind of looked like he was going to spiral out of control, but it was still really, really graceful. Yeah. And he had one of those first cool kind of jives to his surfing and the style that kind of set him apart. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, anyway, Phil Edwards was born on June 10th, 1938 in Long Beach, but didn't pick up surfing until he moved to Oceanside at age nine. In Oceanside, Phil saw the local lifeguards on their giant 14-foot rescue boards, which could somewhat be considered surfboards. Yeah, they, I mean, they would presumably they'd have been Tom Blake. Yeah, that style, the yeah. the big hollow yeah. rescue style. So a couple of waves on those things. Yeah, and that was uh, that was kind of the story. He he saw the lifeguards riding it, and he immediately just kind of became enthralled with it. Mm-hmm. But interesting enough, uh, Phil Edwards was not really a natural. A lot of times where he went out and surfed, that was too big for him. And uh, in his autobiography, he wrote a lot about you know how scared he was and how. Uh, the lifeguards always had to pluck him out of the surf. <laughs> it's kind of like, ah, oh, Phil's out there again. <laughs> I like that idea. I like that a lot. He's kind of a self-made surfer. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, by the late 1950s, uh, Phil Edwards had developed into one of the most uh, preeminent surfers of his generation. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the majority of other surfers, they did that straight line thing, and then the, the tricks they did was kind of the, the original hot-dogging maneuvers, like doing the coffins, or the spinners on the board, yep. and he just turned that on its head. It was yep. all functional. He had that really, uh, in contrast, that functional style and yep. sort of placed his boards in parts of the wave that hadn't really been ridden before. Yeah, he was a great nose rider as well, wasn't he? Yeah, that quintessential Phil Edwards move was sort of the big fade, just sitting way back on the tail, yep. and then fading so hard that it looks like he was going to spin out of control, and right, right when it looks like he's going to slip, uh, kind of runs up to the nose. Awesome. And yeah. compared to anyone else, he, that that really hadn't been been done before. I think for anyone who hasn't seen him, he's uh, he's got quite he's got a bit in the original Endless Summit, doesn't he? It's probably the easiest yeah, way does. to see his surfing. I'll, if I can find a, a version of it online, I'll post it in the show notes. But yeah, there's a couple. Otherwise, check check the Malibu section of uh, of the original Endless Summer movie. And uh, yeah, Bruce Brown's film following the Endless Summer, I think it was called Surfing Holidays. Yes, and it's kind of just all about him. Yeah. And that, at the time, that was kind of the best surfing footage that ever came out. Yeah. Although he was widely regarded as uh, the best all-around surfer during his era, uh, Phil, much like his role model and good friend Mickey Dora, never really had much competitive success or interest in organized competition at all. Um, instead of being in a competitive, structured format, he was way more worried about how he pitted himself against the other surfers in the water. Uh, and so it would be called, you know, one of the first free surfers. Yeah. He competed there occasionally, but w- just was pretty much totally uninterested in him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what made him cool. Who was it used to make his boards? Was it Hobie Alter, I think. Hobie Alter made his boards. I know he, he lived in Hobie Alter's shop and kind of apprenticed for him oh, for cool. a number of years. There's cool stories of, of him kind of when it was still balsa boards. Uh, 
kind of he didn't have a couch or anything to sleep on. So at night they would just put the balsa surfboards on two sawhorses, yeah. and he would just pull up a blanket and sleep on top of them. <laughs> that is a pure surfer right there. Yeah, a that real is real pure surfer. That's making me feel really wimpy in my surfing. I really like sleeping on a mattress. Yeah, yeah. personally, I I am a big fan of the mattress. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, although he never really obtained uh, contest victories, he did have quite a few accolades. Edwards was inducted into the International Surfing Hall of Fame in 1966, uh, one of the first, and to the Huntington Beach Surfing Walk of Fame in 1995. Uh, Surfer Magazine named him as one of the 25 most influential surfers of all time, and I think that was 1999. Uh, And then Surfer listed him as number 12 in the magazine's greatest surfers of all time in that feature they did a couple years ago. That'd yeah, that cool. really, really was. Awesome. And, um, yeah, in conclusion, uh, kind of his competitiveness with fellow surfers kind of what led to him falling out with the sport. As as he got a little older, everyone started to catch up with him. And at about 29, he, he sort of gave surfing up to pursue other hobbies. I know he's really into making catamarans, and he, he was into kind of sailing his creations. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, he's still alive at 77 years old. Phil oh. Edwards, ladies and gentlemen. Phil Edwards. So, on to listener emails. Um, we've had an email from Noel Lapierre. Who's pretty big in the surf rider in the Northeast. Really? Yeah. Oh, I th- really? I, I want to say he's president of the Massachusetts chapter. Oh, wow. Of surf rider. Is that what they're called? The chapter? The chapter. Yeah, yes. Sounds very... Uh, sounds very official, doesn't yeah. it? It's it very official. Does, yeah. He wrote, I know you've discussed the tendency for people to go too small on fins. One of the cons being a bit of slippage when you are trying to carve a bottom turn. But what would the cons be for going too large? I'm trying to settle on the right size fins for my body weight and ability and the size ratings on the FCS website would have me in much smaller fins than the ones I've been using. That raises a pretty good point, doesn't it? Um, As I mean, a rule of thumb, I would say FCS always recommends fins that are too small. They always undercall it, right? Well, I see, I wonder if that is, and I, I think there's been a little change in the aspirational style of surfing, if you like. Mm-hmm. And I think if you go back five or ten years, there was a lot more desire to release the tail mm-hmm. and do all of those, the, the sort of more flat surfing, where the, the board was, was spinning and, and sliding out on the lip. And now I've seen more and more competitive surfers, particularly using bigger fins, because they're rewarding in competition. A lot Pow- more rail more kind surfing. Of r- rail surfing. Rail power yeah, surfing. Yeah. And so I, I think kind of the, the, the quickest answer there is that if you go too large, the one thing that you won't be able to do is slip and slide the board. You won't be able to get to the top of the wave, kick out with the back foot and have that tail release mm-hmm. uh, as easily. Um, and so if that's something you're working on, then then there are problems with going too big. But I think it's very important to remember that all those fins-free maneuvers, mm-hmm. when performed correctly, the fins should be out of the water. Absolutely. So the... I know the consequences of going too big on your fins are much less than that of going too small and losing that uh, kind of the good rail work. Yeah, absolutely. I feel almost in the same way that if you go too small on a surfboard, it's Mm -hmm. easy to cheat the turn. Oh, exactly. If you go too small on the fins, it's easier to cheat that that fin out feeling. I think that was a, that was a very bad habit of mine for a long time. It was just kind of like pushing the turn around. Yeah. Um, and able you're able to skid it a lot easier. But I would say, the biggest thing for me, I've I've recently moved from a sort of like an AM2 middle 
uh, middle sized fin to a large arc fin recently mm-hmm. and the uh, and what weight just, what weight are you i'm um in pounds 160 so you should be using the medium fins that you were exactly using. yeah and you've just moved to a fin that really is according to the chart too big. one 180 yeah. plus i think is so, so what i found was happening was i was dropping into larger waves um and you'd have a lovely big clean smooth face to do a big bottom turn on and i was finding that my confidence was low in is as to how much weight i could put into the bottom turn because mm-hmm. exactly like what he's saying here you get a little bit of slippage when trying to carve a bottom turn ever since putting in the bigger fins I've got so much more confidence with actually coming up and hitting the lip um, with a lot more speed. Yeah. So I would say that for me would be the biggest, and and it was a large difference as well. That was the biggest That's difference. That's a big, for me. big difference. Definitely. I mean, I think if you can't really put confidence in your bottom turn, you're not really going anywhere, are you? Really. Mm. So basically, I think what you need to do is find three longboard fins and put them in your shortboard. <laughs> <laughs> bigger fins you can find the better. Uh, so final thing before we sign off uh, is the what to watch section. There have been a few fun videos bouncing around in Webland. Uh, I enjoyed, did anyone see the, the Made in Australia, the Jay Davis um, yep. profile oh, piece? Uh-huh. Amazing. That's yep. pretty cool. Um, um, and the, the GoPro. Put oh on. my goodness, that GoPro barrels one is ridiculous. So, so there's a, Talk again, about making you want to surf. Yeah. Go- that is a terrible video to watch when you're on injured reserve. Yeah. 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 So go, for those of you that haven't that. seen this yet, go to surfsimply.com slash podcast and check out our, our feed. GoPro took all the point of view footage they had from all of their surfers all around the world and they put together, it's, I think it's like a half hour movie. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty long. From, from different parts of the world and just the best barrel riding going. And actually, I thought it was really interesting because a lot of them are using mouth mounts. It gives you a really good idea of where they're looking. As they're paddling into yeah. the wave, you know, uh-huh. you can really like, okay, what's in the center of the screen? It's just That's, that that opening wave is just ridiculous. Oh, that yeah. Koa Smith yeah. one? Yeah. yeah. I honestly, I do not think I, I, I could, I just couldn't deal with being in the barrel. No, me, I would me, have a heart attack. It'd be so stressful. Like, I was getting stressed <laughs> was, just watching it, just going, oh, and it's still going. Oh, and it's still going, and it's still going. And you're like wondering, am I going to come out of this? This is the longest barrel of my life. Like, I, I was literally getting stressed yeah. watching. What, that after video. about the first six seconds, I was just like, oh my God, this is the longest barrel of my life. I, I have yeah, to get out. You, you'd somehow sabotage yourself, wouldn't you? You'd just have to get out <laughs> somehow, and then you'd end up wiping out, and then you'd watch the whole thing go for another minute. There's actually one thing that I did think was interesting. There's a project between Redcam, who make those like real super slow mo, mm-hmm. high def cameras. And Surfer Magazine, they did a project. Oh, it's amazing. We mentioned it probably about five or ten episodes ago. The first two videos are out, and they're both really, really good. Yeah, so it's. Um, I'll put a link to where everything is. It's it's called Redirect, uh, is, is the name of the project. But there's going to be 12 things, and I think they're asking for us, uh, as, as you know, for all the viewers to vote on who put the best project together. Mm-hmm. And whoever get, put the best project together gets to keep the camera, which is worth 100 grand or yeah. something oh. ridiculous like yeah. that. So that's all for this week, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I hope my uh, my piece on surfboard construction was interesting, and uh, I would be very uh, intrigued to get your feedback on it. You can get a hold of us by emailing podcast at surfsimply.com. Uh, but for now, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.